from Janice Henderson Investors. This is Research in Action, a podcast series that gives investors a behind-the-scenes look at the research and analysis used to shape our understanding of markets and inform investment decisions. Hollywood writer and actor strikes, record-breaking billion-dollar concert tours, high-stakes cable TV feuds. Today, the media sector is volatile, changing, and exciting, making for an interesting time to be investing in these companies, says research analyst Div Devatia. You have all those tech companies which are starting to build a content library. They have global distribution. They have tech skills. So it, it doesn't look likely that they will slow down. But is it possible to find investment opportunities in today's media world without the drama? I'm Carolyn Bigda. And I'm Matt Perone, Director of Research. That's today on Research in Action. Div, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. For anyone who watches TV, it's probably fair to say that their experience today is vastly different from what it was a decade ago, even a few years ago. In July, streaming services commanded a greater share of viewers than cable TV did for the first time in history in the U.S. There are more programming options than ever produced and distributed from around the world. But all this content comes at a cost, which, judging by the stock performance of some companies, the market is not so sure of. Div, can you explain how TV streaming got to where it is today and what the immediate opportunities and challenges are? Sure. So let me first give a historical perspective here, right? So the first real inflection point in streaming came about one decade ago, back in 2013, when House of Cards and Orange is the New Black were released by Netflix. And straight out of the gate, they were a big mega hits across the globe with the audiences. So until then, nobody thought that Netflix could pivot into original content. And what Netflix did by proving that is that they could be a great studio and make original content, which all the legacy media companies did not think it could do. And those thrown off events set the ball rolling and Netflix became a big global behemoth where it tried to make a lot of original successful content and it started growing globally and then In five or six years from then, market cap grew 20 times, subs grew five or six times, it turned free cash flow positive for the first time in 2020, and it suddenly became one of those large media companies from an upstart disruptor that it was 10 years ago. 2018, 2019 timeframe, five years later, all the media companies woke up and smelled the coffee and saw the writing on the wall that, wow, the linear cable television business, which is the lifeblood of their revenues and profits, is declining or its peak has peaked. And streaming is something that they need to show growth to Wall Street. At that time, boom, 2019, 2020, like early 2020, COVID happened. Everyone was stuck at home. Live sports were shut down. There was nothing to do. Everyone started subscribing to streaming subscriptions. And remember, back then, this was a 0% rate world. So what mattered to investors was subs and revenues. So in that land grab mode, every streaming company or every legacy media company started chasing subs by pricing that services as low as possible and by showing growth in terms of revenues and subs. Fast forward 2021, what happens? People start leaving their homes. Sub growth starts to slow down that COVID pull forward demand is starting to slow down. And back in late 2021 and then early 2022, the subgrowth completely hits a stall and then slows down and kind of hits a wall. And then people start freaking out, inflation starts coming, and interest rates starts moving up. 
And what starts matter to the street is start showing me profits and free cash flow. So this company is to react to those things, start increasing prices, introduce advertising tiers, start cutting on content spend and marketing spend, which are the two biggest cost line items for these companies, and try to show profit. So all the... legacy media companies in the streaming businesses lost $10 billion in 2022. And on the other side, the legacy media companies started losing 7% sub declines on their core cable television business. So you had this push and pull of the, of, of the linear business declining, and you also don't have a line of sight to have making any profits in, on the streaming business. So it, today, is, some of these companies are stuck in the middle where they're trying to figure out how do they make profits in streaming without completely taking their linear television business down? And for some of the services, they are still subscale. So they're still in the middle of the journey to get a to, to get a big scale of subs, which is enough for them to make some money in streaming. So today, everybody except Netflix is not profitable on an EBIT or free cash flow basis. And most most of them don't even have a line of sight or scale to get there. And let's just take one step back here and talk about this profitability issue and why so why is it so challenging for the streaming companies to be profitable at this point i think the bigger issue is that you're so for some of these companies you're priced between let's say nine dollars to fifteen dollars that's the broader range Mm -hmm. there is a lot of content spend you need because remember in the historical linear television business you didn't release all your shows at once you had those shows which were released episodically Mm. secondly in a bundled world, in a linear television world, when you are watching ESPN, you are paying for someone who's not watching ESPN. So a non-ESPN view- viewer is paying for an ESPN viewer while you are watching, let's say, TLC or Bravo and someone who's not watching. So in a bundled world, if you are a linear TL- television business or a media network, your, your churn is super low because you cannot cancel your cable television because you're, you're watching something else. And most of this cable television the, uh, bundles are also bundled with your high speed internet or broadband so your journey is super low versus in, a, in an a la carte direct to consumer world you can cancel your show or you, you can cancel your subscription as, as mm-hmm. quickly as the show is over so for some, some of the services that churn is super high the pricing is not that high adequately and then they have to keep making content and spend on marketing and to grow subs and some of the services are still growing internationally so if they want to grow in markets in Europe and Latin America and some parts of Asia they still have to spend marketing and content in those markets So the consumer affinity with these channels has gotten to be a lot less because of the way that these business models have changed, which sounds like it is driven now by new technology, Matt, right? Yeah, well, Div mentioned the tech companies earlier, and I just want to pick up on that. You know, they're disrupting as they usually do. So why have the tech companies had an entree into this? Why have they been so successful? And do you think they can grow from here? So like, let's step back and say, what do you need to be successful in streaming? You basically need four things, I feel. You need great skills in technology. So that's making a great user interface that is not buggy and it has a great experience and there's a great recommendation engine. You need a great content library, whether it's licensed or it's owned, you have great IP. Third thing you need is global scale or distribution or maybe not global, but a good enough scale or distribution. And the fourth thing you need is probably you don't need a legacy business that, you, that you're that you cannibalizing. So you have all those tech companies which are starting to build a content library. They have global distribution. They have tech, tech skills. So it, it doesn't look likely that they will slow down. Secondly, think about this. All the legacy media companies today are leveraged. In a 5% interested world, it would become incrementally difficult for them to fund a bunch of this content. On the, and on the contrary, these tech companies have hundreds of billions of cash sitting on their balance sheet, so they're going to make 5% return here. Secondly, 
if you're a tech company and you cannot use that cash to buy any big company under this regulatory environment, you can do big M&A. So the easiest way for them to grow in this business is to is to buy a bunch of content, spend a lot of cash, which is sitting on their balance sheet, and to, and to actually grow this content business. And these companies take a long-term view. They don't take a view based on a quarter. So if they are thinking about next five or 10 years, then this business makes a lot of sense for them to go into. And again, for them, this business is not their core business. So this business is not going to move the needle for them. But at the end of the day, it helps widen their moat and it helps them reach those customers and to and to give them one more thing to use. At the same time, I mean, we still do have the legacy players in the industry. These are the cable operators that for decades made a lot of money selling bundles of TV channels. And then the media companies that collected fees from the operators and advertisers in exchange for content. But, you know, streaming threatens to upend this relationship, this this sort of cable bundle that we talked about earlier. And do you think that they go extinct, you know, or is there a way forward for those two types of companies? It's tough. I think the biggest change that's happened in the last five years, especially, is that is that these cable companies don't make any money by selling you video. Mm-hmm. They make money by selling you high-speed internet. Yeah. So they have a little skin in the game now to make money by selling you video. And in a way, you saw this with the whole spat that happened earlier between Charter and Disney. And maybe that is a future template for how this how this relationship survives. And they both need each other at this point of time. And the way forward, I think, is maybe the cable companies start to create a new bundle. And the bundle being you tr- you start to scale up and you start to bundle up a bunch of the streaming services into a linear c- cable bundle. And that helps in terms of those streaming services, they, it helps their churn to go down. And then secondly, the streamers can make money by a- advertising. So once they get scaled, they get engagement, they can make money on, on, on ads. And then on the second side, this might also extend the life of that whole ecosystem. Like today, you have 7% sub declines. Maybe this takes the sub declines slightly lower, and then you can extend the life of this, of this product by a few years or 10 years or something like that, which is incremental. So maybe I feel that it is the right way forward where some of these cable companies start creating a new bundle. And as, as a consumer, people are also fatigued by having 10 different subscriptions. They can literally go to one one company and pay same same amount of money or pay one bill and get five or 10 different services, which makes sense eventually from a consumer point of view as well. So maybe we go from a world that's where we have, you know, cable TV as its own entity and then streaming services as its own entity to a world where they kind of merge into a single unit. Is that kind of the idea? I think the bigger question is maybe it works for someone, a streamer, which is not which is not scaled enough. So some of those services which are large and have enough mass don't see a value to be part of that bundle because they're not going to gain any subs or they're not going to rule those churn. But for a lot of others, it makes incremental sense for them to get scale and to be part of the bundle and to reduce churn and to actually reach that aisle of getting some profits in next 12 months or 24 months before things get really bad and it's not possible to scale this business. So let's turn to sports because they have been a, a big piece of the TV business model for a long time. You know, for some people, the sole reason they sign up for cable is to access sports programming. But that's changing now too, as coverage increasingly get split up and distributed across multiple platforms. You talked about a little bit earlier, but you know, what do you think the sports landscape looks like in the future? That's a great question. And actually, sports is the only glue that keeps this whole thing together right now. Mm-hmm. ESPN is the glue. And then there is the whole other channels that makes people 
have the cable television. So we had around 100 million pay TV households or cable house, cable TV households at the peak. Today we have something less than 75 million. And various analysts estimates that the that the floor could be around 50 million range. Now, the problem for Sports League is that they have not been able to connect to younger viewers because a bunch of the younger fans are not on linear or pay TV distribution because Mm -hmm. they use streaming. And most of the sports games are not available on streaming. For example, the average age of an NFL fan is 43 years, but the average NFL viewer on television is 54. Mm. So it shows you that whole disconnect where the NFL is not able to reach younger fans. So the leagues have to increasingly move to streaming or, or app streaming to reach those younger fans. But the leagues are also not dumb enough to completely rip the cord one day and to go all in into streaming one day and snap in. They will gradually dial that knob and move slowly into streaming because they also don't want to take out the value of those TV rights one day. So I think increasingly you will have this dual model of broadcasting plus streaming. So the leagues will use broadcasting or bunch of these games for reach, but then you will have some some games or some of those some of those rights will be carved into something like streaming. So you look at what NFL has done. If you want to watch a game on Sunday, you go to CBS or NBC or something like that. If you want to watch a game on a Thursday, you go to Amazon Prime. So they are increasingly trying to slice and dice it in a way where you can have some streaming, but you can also have some broadcasting. And I think that's going to be the template, at least for this decade. And then we'll see how this thing happens. But the longer term issue is, again, only the tech companies can outbid those legacy media companies because of the scale and and, and the balance sheet that they have. And again, those competitors don't have to make money in video. So when you're not making money in video, if you're making money by shopping or by a search, you don't have to make standalone money by selling those TV rights. So it's getting increasingly difficult for some of these media companies to sustain their business model by paying more and more for sports rights because they the, the only way they can make money is by, is by selling a video bundle. Now, you will see a lot of fragmentation into sports and various games will be on different apps. And I think that's where the consumer pain point will reach at a critical at some point in future where you will have to go to 10 different apps for which game and you won't know which game is on what app or on what service. So I think longer term, there is a value for someone to come and aggregate all this into one thing. So I think that's the that's the future. But again, we don't know if that happens in the next five years or 10 years, but that's what it looks like increasingly if the fragmentation continues. So another big segment of the media business is music. And they were through a lot of this before. It wasn't too long ago that the you know music labels were under assault by the streamers as well. So can you update us on what's going on there? As you know, the music business, again, to give a historical perspective, got completely gutted when Steve Jobs introduced the iPod. And then you had Spotify, which came with a 999 plan, unlimited streaming. So both those things just took those business completely out of the shackles. And then what happened is, the industry returned first. The first time it showed any growth was in 2015 after its peak into 1999. And then it just surpassed its peak in 2021. Wow. So it took them 22 years to surpass its peak that it had in 99. And this is on inflation on adjusted basis. Think about all the value destruction that's happened in the music business in the last 25 years. Now, fast forward today, music business looks very robust and healthy. You have around 500 million plus streaming subscription users. There's a pass to a billion plus. Music discovery and listening has gotten much easier and convenient. You've got AirPods now, you've got home speakers, you've got Shazam, you've got TikTok. So it's become much more easier for someone to access music, find music. So that 
that's helping in terms of music penetration and engagement is on the rise. And then you also have older listeners who grew up in a world where if they had to listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they had to go back in the day and buy an album. Now, those consumers are suddenly realizing in the last few years that they can consume anything that they grew up with for $9.99 at their fingertips. So the, so the music business is one of the only businesses after sports in the whole media ecosystem, which has some pricing power. And so for the first time, you saw music apps take a price increase. The price went up from $9.99 to $10.99. And that's, hel- that's helping the record labels. So it overall looks like from a labels and music perspective, you are in the you are in the sweet spot of increasing engagement, penetration, and pricing. And then from the from the artist perspective, ninety percent of their income comes from touring, and streaming is more of a medium for them to get their music out, break out a new song, and to engage with their fans. But the real meat of the money lies in concerts, which is where they make most of their money, and the lifelong fans is when they are on the road. So speaking of concerts, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if there's any part of the music business that's having a renaissance, it is the concert business. Artists like Taylor Swift, Beyonce, both women, by the way, broke multiple records this year on their respective tours. Do you think the concert bonanza is a one-off? Is this a case of revenge concert going after the pandemic? Or can the momentum be sustained? So, and now there's Olivia Rodrigo. So you've got they got Another not two one. women, but three yeah. women. She's breaking the system as well, I heard. So the concert business, similar, shut down during COVID. And then when it reopened, there was a lot of pent-up demand. Economy was super strong. And so you have this effect where some of this demand is basically a pent-up demand that came from the, the COVID lockdowns. However, structurally, also a few things have changed in the business. Younger people are valuing live experiences much more. Think about it. This generation was born and raised with an iPhone. The only time they connected with their friends was online. The live concert is one of the only ways they can go with their friends and connect offline. Secondly, there's a little bit of social behavior with social media where people can post if they go to a concert, which people like to feel good about themselves when they're posting something. So there's a little bit of those social elements. The other structural change that has happened is that music has globalized, right? Because of social media and streaming. If you are a Taylor Swift or a Drake, you drop a song today, it glows across the world. Mm. Back in the day, you had to put an album which goes to a label, which goes to a record store, which goes to some parts of the world after a few months. So this business has completely changed in last 10 or 15 years. Secondly, there are a lot of new artists that are breaking out. Like uh, there are a few Latin artists which which no one had heard a few years ago and now they are one of the hottest artists in the world. New types of music is breaking out. Again, thanks to streaming, you can listen to whatever you want. And like K-pop is big, African music is getting bigger, Latin Mm -hmm. music is really mainstream. And then... On vice versa, the U.S. artists historically were touring mostly parts of U.S. and some parts of Western Europe and maybe Japan or some other countries. Today, because of artists being global and being megastars, they can literally go to parts of the world which no one thought about five years ago. So you have a bit of pull forward, but you also have a lot of structural change in the business as well as new types of music, as well as a lot of artists breaking out and consumers valuing experiences much more. The question now is what happens if the economy slows down? Are we going to revert back to the normal? Mm. Are people going to take a pause for some time because they did a lot of concerts binge in last two years? Or are we going to still see a lot of people go to new concerts? The artist supply still looks robust for next year. So we shall see from a demand perspective what happens. Matt, when you think about this industry, it sounds like there are a lot of cross currents between sort of long-term trends and you know more near-term cyclical maybe opportunities. And so I guess when you're talking with the team, how are you guys thinking about this? Well, our 
you know, DNA, if you will, is long-term trends, really try and focus on the secular growers, the innovators. And in media, as you see, this is, you know, that focus, that long-term focus is really key because you can get lost in the noise of the, the, the cyclical, as you say. So we really try and focus on, okay, what is this going to look like five and 10 years out and find those drivers? Going back to the music example, that was a 20-plus year time horizon to see the shakeout from streaming services sort of, you know, find a point where the, the industry could grow again. Do you think that for media and TV, they're going to need a similar timeline to sort themselves out? So we always take a long-term view and we start with the group dynamics that are going on and work from there. And so in the music business, for a long time, it was under pressure. It was very hard to invest in a space that was under such secular pressure for 20 years, as you mentioned. So I'll leave it to Div as to, you know, the comparison today is probably a little bit different, but it does have some uh, historical precedence here. Div, what do you think? I, I think I, I think that's spot on. And like, look at Lean Television today or legacy media companies. And if you look at based on stock prices, the longer term investors focus on business model are avoiding these names because they don't see long-term value in this business. They, they feel that the business model is impaired. They don't see that pricing power. And they feel that they will take a lot of things to happen before the business is right-sized and they can start growing. And then the other question is, in music, you didn't have Apple or Amazon buying labels. They only created those end-state platforms where you can consume music. They were not creating labels or buying those content. They were mostly only trying to distribute the music that the labels owned and had the rights to. In this business, you have the tech companies which are also creating content. So it's going to be different here, and we'll see how that happens. But as of now, it seems like the street is saying that the linear television business has a lot of room to go down, and they don't want to associate with those names at this point. And a bunch of these companies are also levered. So at, at a 5% rate world, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of these longer-term investors to be associated. When you can anyways own a lot of other businesses and other, other ways to win and capture some of that upside in a longer-term way. So let's end the conversation with what you think the next big shakeup in the world of content, streaming, TV might be in your view. Is it, you know, that uh, Rupert Murdoch's retirement creates a, a seismic shift, uh, Taylor Swift takes her tour and her fans to the moon? Is it something even crazier? <laughs> Good question. Wow. Many possibilities here. I think what will AI bring us? That's That's one of the things that could be a thing that people are still not thinking in the content creation world. But it's clearly that we're seeing a lot of disruption happen in the in the broader tech space and even within this space. And this disruption has staying power. Every time there's a big change in Hollywood, there is a strike. Mm -hmm. So you saw a strike then it was because there was streaming. Last time there was a strike, there was another technological change. So what AI does to content creation could be very disruptive, where suddenly if you can create content with much lower cost and suddenly that opens the gates for anyone to become, not anyone, but a lot of people to become a media company and to create the next Game of Thrones or the next Star Wars with a much different skill set by using a lot of AI. That's a thing to keep an eye for. So some of those technologies are moving incredibly fast and might reach an inflection point. And that's something that we have to keep monitoring in terms of what happens to the broader change in the media world in the next 10 years. So I guess we'll just have to stay tuned. Div, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been a great discussion. 
Next time, we will check in with members of the financial sector team to get their view on the property and casualty insurance industry, which is grappling with a significant leap in net underwriting losses as a result of extreme weather events, inflation, and more. We hope you'll join. Until then, I'm Carolyn Bigda. I'm Matt Perone. You've been listening to Research in Action. TDA is short for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It is one of the most widely used measures of a company's financial health and ability to generate cash. Technology industries can be significantly affected by obsolescence of existing technology, short product cycles, falling prices and profits, competition from new market entrants, and general economic conditions. A concentrated investment in a single industry could be more volatile than the performance of less concentrated investments in the market as a whole. The views presented are as of date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, but not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janus Henderson Investors is a source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions, a. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, Registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, Company Registration Number 19970782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E, Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors, Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F, South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited only to qualified professional investors, is defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G, Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan, Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H, Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 47124279518, and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office.
This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions on its resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson is a trademark of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C1023-52188-103024-TL.